On February 26th, Israeli settlers launched a brutal attack on the Palestinian town of Huwara in the West Bank. They rampaged across the area, setting fire to cars, businesses and homes. As the fires from these attacks lit up the night sky, one Palestinian resident spoke to reporters. What is happening is the burning of an entire village. This is what the settlers do. Dozens of shops and dozens of houses are broken and burned. The horrific attack by settlers had been preceded by an increased number of violent incursions by Israeli soldiers into the West Bank that had resulted in numerous civilian fatalities. While some in Israel condemned the pogroms, Israeli finance minister and far-right extremist Bezalel Smotrich called for the erasure of the town of Huara by the state. This appalling incitement was heard in the US and prompted a response by the US State Department. US State Department spokesman Ned Price spoke to reporters on March 1st. These comments were irresponsible, they were repugnant, they were disgusting, and just as we condemn Palestinian incitement to violence, uh, we condemn these provocative remarks that also amount to incitement to violence. We call on Prime Minister Netanyahu and other senior Israeli officials to publicly and clearly reject and disavow these comments. But the US did not feel outraged enough to prevent Smotrich from travelling to Washington, D.C. to speak at a conference. This week, we're looking at the state of U.S.-Israeli relations. How have relations between the two countries changed? Does Israel still enjoy unwavering support among Jewish Americans? And will the U.S. stick with an increasingly far-right and openly racist government? I'm Hugo Goodrich, and this is The New Arab Voice. Historically, obviously, the U.S. and Israel have literally since the birth of the state of Israel had a very close relationship. This is Lara Friedman. Lara is the president for the Foundation for Middle East Peace. The U.S. has been Israel's arguably most important political ally from the day that Israel declared itself to be a country. Um, And that continues through the present day. While at times in their long relationship, there have been points of disagreement and the occasional intense divergence of opinion, more often than not, the two countries have walked hand in hand. In its more recent history, the two countries have been almost inseparable, with the US going out of its way to protect its ally in the Middle East. But Israel and the US aren't only sticking together for their sparkling personalities and witty rapport. So what do they want from each other? I mean, the problem with answering that question is that is a very subjective analysis. Um, The argument that has been made for years by the defenders and the backers of, you know, the strong U.S.-Israel alliance is that, you know, fine, the U.S. gives massive financial aid, gives massive political cover, but in exchange gets far more in exchange, whether that is having a foothold in the Middle East or having a strong democratic ally or the economic benefit we have to our military industrial complex. A strong ally in a region the US has always sought to dominate and the opportunity to sell vast quantities of arms 
have been the essential bedrock of the relationship for decades. But as Israel's occupation of Palestinian land has become increasingly permanent and the policies ever more oppressive, less tangible extras have been added onto the bill. A counter-argument can be made that U.S. policies of massively investing in supporting and defending an Israeli government that year after year has come to be defined by disrespect for international laws and international norms, particularly with respect to human rights and civil society and free speech, the U.S. being essentially associated in the international community with defense of impunity for Israel, even, for example, when it's impunity for having violated the rights of American citizens, including the you know killing an American citizen journalist. The, the, the cost-benefit analysis is very much in the eyes of the beholder. The rules of the relationship between the U.S. and Israel have been pretty firmly set on Capitol Hill. But beyond the corridors of power, the relationship between American citizens, particularly Jewish Americans, and Israel has been more fluid. I would stratify it into older and younger people, Jewish, because they face different things. Robert Lipton is a Jewish American research scientist and poet from California, but has spent much of his life campaigning against apartheid. He previously worked closely with the anti-apartheid group Jewish Voice for Peace. I was brought up in a milieu where Palestinians didn't exist, and we didn't have a sense of the massive settler colonial structure that was uh, you know, starting to really become in place from the point of view of the U.S. supporting it. The younger Jewish population wasn't raised with that. A lot of young people were really into Bernie Sanders, for example. And they're hearing him say things about, you know, Jews and Palestinians that have not been said by a presidential candidate before, a pretty popular one. And so there's a sense of unease. There's a sense of, uh, or just they don't care. They said, Jesus, this is barbaric. I've stayed away from it. Because a lot of American Jewish, younger Jews are not very religious. They're pretty secular. It's going in the wrong direction from the point of view of this kind of you got to marry a Jew thing. You know, I, I got that in Hebrew school. A 2022 study by the American Pew Research Center reported that 55 percent of Americans, including Jews and non-Jews, said that they viewed Israel favorably. But among 18 to 29 year olds, that number dropped to 41 percent. In Robert's experience with Jewish Voice for Peace, as Israeli policies have become more oppressive and more extreme, disillusionment among Jewish Americans has also increased. And the good news is because JVP is growing, it's not just on a few people's shoulders. So I think that's really important. We become more radicalized because, uh, for example, there's a lot of LGBT involved, and there's, a, there's an obvious reason. These people have been alienated from the quote-unquote normal world for a long time, and they're Jewish, and they have this, you know, kind of non-normative quote-unquote sensibility, and there's this giant thing being done in their name. It's a gathering point for people who are alienated from their communities, in a sense, and that's what happened initially. We had a lot of uh, alienated Jews said, I don't know where to go. Where can we go? There wasn't an organization. There were older organizations that had disappeared, dissipated and such. But JVP was, at that time, 
you know, the only game in town. Throughout his long involvement in the anti-Zionist movement, Rob has seen how it has grown considerably in the US, although not yet become dominant. But the struggle against Zionism doesn't only lie with American Jews. It is, of course, the Palestinians who feel the effects of these racist policies, and Palestinian Americans have faced an uphill struggle when it comes to getting their voices heard. I'm Palestinian myself. My family comes from the West Bank. And I think having been born and raised in the West as part of the Palestinian diaspora, I can remember a day when, you know, I would go up and identify myself as Palestinian and I would be miscorrected or folks would not know what it meant to be Palestinian. And I remember at times I would have to explain to them that I was Middle Eastern, you know, in which part of the world I would I was coming from. And many would then respond with, are, are, you know, are you saying you're Israeli? This is Iman Abed. Iman is the director of advocacy and organizing at the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. And so I think from a very early on age, I started to realize that hmm, folks aren't quite aware of our own identities, let alone our nationality. Um, and so as I kind of started probing that over time, and started becoming a little more firm in one's identity as one does when they grow, I started to realize that it wasn't just some sort of misunderstanding or miscorrection that I think that folks here in the West just weren't quite sure of what was really happening. One issue the US Campaign for Palestinian Rights has found is that people can find the complexities surrounding the occupation difficult to grasp. Or rather, Israeli propaganda efforts to frame the occupation as a complicated issue in the hope of dissuading interest and avoiding scrutiny, have been highly effective. I think due to that overcomplication, I could say that at one point, folks, you know, weren't quite aware of what was happening. Now, as, you know, the last few years have gone by, specifically around the intifadas that have popped up in our, you know, modern day society, as folks can now reflect on in the last 20 years, I think something has definitely changed. And so we are starting to see here across the U.S., a better understanding, at least an awareness of what is happening, to the point that folks are starting to call it more so an occupation than it is just this weird political conflict, which oftentimes folks you know, define it as, which is actually really derogatory, um, especially when we're talking about a, a staunch military occupation that has been ethnically cleansing Palestinians for the last 75 years. For groups like the US Campaign for Palestinian Rights, they welcome a change of opinion or a greater understanding of Israel's occupation and the nature of Zionism. Um, And we are starting to see a huge transition um, and a larger percentage of Jewish Americans are starting to actually become more anti-Zionist and anti-occupation, which is extremely critical for those of us who are trying to bring more awareness to the issue. Since, you know, oftentimes when we talk about Zionism, it's inevitable that the concept of being Jewish also comes up as we understand Zionism is about the creation of a Jewish state. And so as we see this rise across Jewish communities, we're bringing light to that because it's also really important for those Jewish communities to take the positions that we Palestinians who have faced the occupation um, have taken for as long as we've all existed. There's a really great opportunity ahead of us because we are starting to see that transition. More folks are becoming aware. um, And I think it's actually been very helpful to us in trying to bring more attention on what's happening in in Israel-Palestine. There's massive changes. They're small in the aggregate, but relative to where they started from, yes. There's far more comfort level with saying I'm anti-Zionist or I'm non-Zionist. Yeah, no, no Zionism, right? And and equating that with a kind of a a racial violence. It's easier to um, 
kind of uh, support given our own history of racial violence. It's hard for Jews though, because we're so ensconced in this Zionist rhetoric. But when you think about it, Zionism isn't isn't a belief system, it's a it's a power system. This is an opinion that is starting to show signs among another US group who also have a strong traditional support for Zionism. Laura Friedman again. I talked to friends of mine working on the, you know, who follow Christian evangelical trends. And here we're talking about the evangelical Zionists. There is this, there are Christian evangelicals who are not hardline Zionists. But amongst evangelicals, amongst younger evangelicals, there's, there's likewise a slippage in this sort of knee-jerk support for Israel. As, as a friend of mine said, you have, uh, you know, multiple generations now who view the world in terms of people and planet, not in terms of tribes and ideology. And if you're concerned about people and planets, um, that this the idea that there is an Israel exception to every single rule, every single argument about human rights and civil rights and anything else, it doesn't it doesn't sit very well. More Americans are waking up to the true nature of the military occupation, questioning the value of the U.S. relationship, and publicly rejecting the ideology of Zionism. And some are also learning that to do so comes with risks. I mean, personally speaking, as a Palestinian is probably one of the most controversial things that someone could be speaking about today, especially when, you know, we have, for instance, someone being directed for the human rights department in the executive branch here. And due to his previous stances on Palestine was actually completely removed from that nomination. And so we know that if at any point you have taken a position on Palestine, there may be room there for you to be canceled in some way. Right. And I think that's something that people are really afraid of and oftentimes gets in the way of getting folks to really speak out on it. So I think that there's like almost two populations of people. It's those that actually are aware of the situation and know exactly what's going on in Palestine, Israel. But then there's also a subgroup of those folks that don't want to speak up on it due to that fear. And it's that base of folks that are aware of it, but may not necessarily feel comfortable enough to speak out on it, um, that I think has served as one of the largest impediments as and, and understanding that we still live in a society as of today where we haven't actually removed other sorts of tactics and mechanisms and vehicles that have been used to really create this level of fear, right? And, and, and surveillance on folks who have taken a position on Palestine. So if you think about what's happening both in the US and Europe and, and the world more broadly, the effort to, in a formal way, conflate anti-Semitism with criticism of Israel, which is given form in the campaign around what's called the IRA definition, IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, which is a definition that explicitly <laughs> conflates criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. I mean, we're at a point now where, at least in the U.S., you know, it's not merely mem- you know members of Congress or candidates being called insufficiently supportive of Israel. It's calling them actual anti-Semites. And as soon as you start invoking anti-Semitism, you're in, a, in an even more complicated political ballgame in an era where rising hate speech is one of the biggest concerns or rising hate is one of the biggest concerns of progressives. And that includes actual anti-Semitism, right? We have actual anti-Semitism surging in the United States, people who hate Jews because because they are hostile to Judaism, they are racist against the Jewish people, and they wish ill, if not direct harm and violence against the Jewish people. That's real, right? So once you start invoking anti-Semitism as code for that, but also as code for criticism of Israel, you're putting candidates and parties in a very challenging position. Jewish Voice for Peace 
by virtue of existence, its existence is a kind of protection. You're not just on your own being accused of that. There's a group of us. Initially, when you hear that, I, I, I can't tell you, Hugo, how many times people would tell me, you're really not a Jew, like nice old grandmas and stuff. You're really not Jewish. On your own, you hear that and you go, wow, that's awful. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my thoughts are crazy, you know. But if you have an organization that's developed, has material, has tried to go through a process of internal strengthening and trying to make itself coherent, there's a lot of support there. So that's the, the organization is kind of the answer in a sense. Elections for political office are perpetually on the horizon in the US. So with a growing awareness, can we anticipate a closer examination of the US's relationship with Israel and by extension, a closer examination of Israel's occupation by US voters? I think there is a core of Jewish American voters and Christian evangelical voters for whom Israel is one of the red meat issues that they really do vote on. But polling has has shown consistently that most Jewish Americans don't put Israel at the top of the issues on which they vote. Same for Palestinian Americans. I think there's a constituency for whom this issue is, is at the top of their minds when they go to the polls. I, I think it's relatively small. I think the more important element is, will this be an issue that is nonetheless <laughs> manipulated and exploited by politicians, um, by candidates, by parties in these elections? And if the last round of elections was an example, then the answer is, uh, absolutely. This was most clearly seen in the Democratic primary for Michigan's 9th Congressional District. In 2018, the seat was won by Democrat Andy Levin, beating out two other Democratic contenders and winning the general election with 59.6% of the vote. In 2020, he won again with 57.8% of the vote. Two years later, he faced another Democratic primary. But this time, he lost. During his time in office, he had angered the powerful American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC. APAC spent $4 million to discredit him among the district's sizable Jewish community. On the face of it, this may seem like an odd choice for APAC. Andy Levin is Jewish, pro-Israel, and a self-proclaimed Zionist, but not pro-Israel enough for APAC. They were angered by his introduction of a bill, the Two-State Solution Act, which sought to block the expansion of Israeli settlements, the demolition of Palestinian homes in the occupied West Bank, and prevent US funding from aiding Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories. Furthermore, AIPAC took umbrage with Levin when he stood up in defense of his fellow Democratic representative, Ilhan Omar. His defeat showed that being pro-Israel isn't enough you have to go much further. The power of invoking Israel and support for Israel in U.S. elections at any time um, should not be underestimated. And in the current environment where this is one of, again, this is one of the red meat issues for the hardline MAGA Republicans and the Christian evangelicals who, who view this, again, in the same way that they view um, abortion rights, trans issues. I mean, it, it's part of a short list 
of the most hot button issues on which they engage and organize and on which they vote. So I think it's almost inconceivable that this will not be an issue that's used in the next elections by both parties. While an unquestioning friendship with Israel is being second-guessed by more American voters, however slowly, support for Israel among U.S. lawmakers is, if anything, growing. I think in relation to just U.S. governance and um, whether it be the executive or Congress, I think we've actually seen a doubling down on you know, the relationship built out um, between the U.S. and Israel. And I think that it's a relationship that has been extremely difficult to break, right? Which is why we're not seeing such a change as we want to see in Congress. For U.S. lawmakers, they've had to repeatedly double down on Israel, whether it being the murder of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, the repeated assaults on Gaza, incursions at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, violent assaults by the Israeli military in the West Bank, the expansion of illegal settlements, right up to the recent pogrom in Huara. To date, every time there is a violation of human rights or international law, the majority of those who hold political office in the US have either said nothing or reaffirmed their support for Israel. As an analyst, it's difficult for me to imagine what it, what would ha- what would have to happen for the US-Israel relationship at a, at a fundamental level to, to, to really be in question. And then you have the piece of it, which is Congress, right? So even if right now something happened, the Biden administration said, and this is inconceivable, this is one of those hypotheticals, which is inconceivable. But if they said, you know what, whatever Israel has just done is so far across the line, we need to reconsider. I mean, Republicans hold the House and Democrats barely hold the Senate and see that there are elections coming. It's very difficult to imagine that Congress even now, whatever whatever happened, however bad it was, wouldn't step in to protect Israel from, from an administration that was trying to seek some sort of accountability. The collective blindness of US power centres when it comes to Israel is a barrier for accountability. But the problem extends beyond its borders. So it's not merely that the US won't engage, won't spend political capital challenging its own relationship with Israel or trying on its own to seek accountability. It's actively intervening to prevent the UN from taking action, preventing the ICC or the ICJ from taking action, right? So, I mean, this question is sometimes asked, well, where do the Palestinians go for justice? Nowhere. We're not going to let them go anywhere. And then, you know, we get where we are today. And, and then people are like, oh, no, how, how, how is it that things are turning, turning back to armed struggle? It's like, well, you, you've cut off literally every other possibility. I mean, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know. For years, one of the cornerstones of the U.S.-Israeli relationship has been military aid. You know, th- this is exactly why the U.S. campaign was, was created, right, is to target the ending to military funding. And I think that having that sort of intentional approach and intentional goal has been really important to us as an organization because there's so much you could be doing for the Palestinian people, whether it be centering their human rights violations or if it's, you know, talking about and lifting up the stories of those who have undergone the Nakba, whatever it may be. But our specific targeting here in relation to the Palestinian Solidarity Movement has always been to bring attention to the U.S.'s involvement in the military occupation. And that is simply because if the U.S. wasn't funding and supporting the Israeli military occupation to the extent that it was, I don't know if it would actually have had the power that it has today. And the extent of that military funding is staggering. Currently, the U.S. is sending $3.8 billion of military aid to Israel every year. 
I think there's something to be said about the fact that this military occupation and the forced displacement of Palestinians now not only across you know parts of Jerusalem and what is now considered Israel, but even into the West Bank, Palestinians are continuing to be displaced um, and killed. And I think as part of that Zionist project, we want to make sure that we bring attention to this and bring attention to specifically like U.S. taxpayers around what is their role in this, because we know that folks may be able to talk about systems and they can talk about these sorts of conflicts and wars and kind of look at them from afar. Um, but it's really important to actually bring back our own personal involvement in these sorts of things. And as you can imagine, I'm, I myself is a, a, I'm a U.S. citizen, right? Like, and I, I pay taxes and like, what a, what a weird complexity to, to be in knowing that I am in some way also participating in this. And, and I think it's understanding that we have a role to play in this. And it's really important for us to be able to influence our Congress and our members of Congress to take a position on this and actually end these sorts of this military funding. Given the nature of the Israeli military occupation, there are obvious concerns by many about how this military aid would be used. Although not a concern for the US government, who attach no conditions to the military aid. For many in the capital, once the aid has been delivered, it has served its purpose, both in Israel and domestically. A frequent response to criticism of the military aid is to point at the jobs that are created in the US military industrial complex an argument that holds little water for Lara Friedman. I'm always fascinated by the idea. If we really want to support the military-industrial complex, we can just give them the money directly. We don't have to give it to Israel to give to them, right? This is, it's one of these really odd odd arguments. So yes, a large percentage of the $3.8 billion that we give to Israel ends up being invested in our weapons companies, which I think there are many people would argue is not the best way for U.S. funding to be invested. But even if you support it, so fine. You could build those things for us and then we could spend less on our defense. I mean, so I, I just I, I don't the, the framing is difficult for me to to even articulate because it doesn't make sense to me. For years, Israel has been using this aid to enforce its military occupation. For almost as many years, it has managed to do so while maintaining an outward facing level of democratic liberalism. The most recently elected government has made little attempt to hide its far-right racist ideologies, as seen by the recent call by Smotrich for the state to erase an entire village. There are views that are widely agreed to be ugly and illiterate with a functioning democracy. But perversely, the openness of this new government could be of great benefit to those in the US who are campaigning for the rights of Palestinians. In a way, I think as most fascist governments have actually collapsed upon themselves, this is this might possibly happen here too. And I think that, you know, much of what we've been saying, and not just we as an organization, but as just a movement, as a peoples, have been saying that all the things coming out of these sorts of, you know, whether it be Netanyahu's or Smoltrick's mouth of whomever is speaking right now on behalf of the Israeli government, um, they are saying the exact things that we have always believed, right? And oftentimes we say if folks are like soft conservatives or soft liberals, oftentimes what happens is that we're not hearing these things said out loud. It compromises on our ability to be able to actually express exactly loudly and proudly like what we've been saying for a really long time. Um, and I think in this case right now, these sorts of like, incredibly derogatory comments are actually proving a point and bringing awareness to something. And it's actually moving the U.S. to a point of condemning these sorts of statements, right? Like that they can't call for the expansion of settlements into the West Bank, um, that it's outright unlawful of them to do so, right? And despite the fact that the Israeli government does not necessarily care, the foreign audience and, and uh, folks outside of Israel are actually starting to, to take positions on it. 
If the US was going to end its relationship with Israel because of its continued human rights abuses, it would have done so a long time ago. Those in power that can do something are currently doing nothing. But they serve at the liberty of the people who vote for them. And each day, more people are seeing what an apartheid system means, and in some cases, what policies are being carried out in their name. Many of these questioning people in the US are younger voters, and the voters of tomorrow. A critical mass is building. You know, beginning of the conversation is the end of the conversation. We just got to keep at it. Nonviolent social justice movements have always taken a long time, for the most part. And the dirty secret about Israel now, it hasn't been that long. Okay, it's getting long. I'm old. And it used to not be that long in regard to social justice movements. I mean, how long was it in Algeria? It's a long time. South Africa, half century plus, 75 years or something. We're approaching that time now in Israel. Maybe that's the, uh, that's the amount of time it takes to, you know, kind of gestate a successful change. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region. Music.